We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're going to be listening to episode 20. I'm going to talk about these mysterious PCNs. These are a kind of rock art on chlorite schist boulders found throughout the uh, North Coast range, and we're going to hear from two wonderful guest speakers, both of them uh, accomplished women. Well, hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, president of the California Rock Art Foundation, for the next episode, episode 20 of the Rock Art Podcast. We have a real treat. We have two board members from the California Rock Art Foundation who have worked together in the field and have done tremendous uh, expertise and, and effort in the area around the uh, Diablo Range and the North Coast Range and also all over California. And we're going to be hearing about rock art. We're going to be hearing about geospatial analysis as well. First of all, we have Donna Gillette, who received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, on the subject of rock art. She's been a founding member of the California Rock Art Foundation and our vice president for uh, many years. And we have indeed also Linda Hilkema, who is the uh, director of cultural resource management at Santa Clara University. 
and for Mission Santa Clara, and she as well is a board member of the California Rock Art Foundation. But don't hold that against them. <laughs> Linda and Donna, are you there? I'm we here. are here. We are here. Well, the the million dollar question that we use to uh, open this this segment, the first of three, is um, how did you get, ever get in, get into this uh, niche of archaeology, anthropology, and the study and and interest in uh, rock art? So I'll let Donna open it up. Donna, take it away. All right. Well, my uh, my introduction into archaeology was really through seeing petroglyphs in, I believe it was Oak Canyon in Arizona, when we made a, mm-hmm. a trip there many, many, many years ago with our young family. Found it very intriguing. So in many, many trips after that, we visited rock art sites all over and archaeological sites, mainly in the Southwest. I became very interested when I lived in uh, Southern California. I guess I was in, yeah, I was in Southern California, living in Calabasas, and I became an, a docent with the Movable Museum out of the Natural History Museum. And the subject I picked up on was California history, and I zeroed in on archaeology. That led to me taking some classes at UCLA for a certificate in archaeology. And before I finished that, with only the final paper to go, we ended up moving to San Jose. Oh. Once in San Jose, I decided to go for a master's. I was over 50 at that time, but decided to go to Hayward to get my master's, mainly because they didn't need a GRE test was my real impetus for going there. Anyway, I got there and uh, received my degree there uh, and then somehow ended up at Berkeley in uh, the year was it about 122, 2002? Okay. Yeah, I, I ended up at Berkeley and had applied for their department in uh, under Meg Conkey as, as her asking me to do that. Normal entrance, she said, you got to take all the tests, but we don't look at all of them. So fortunately, she didn't because I did get accepted and I was felt very fortunate to have my life totally changed by working on a PhD at Berkeley. And that's about the short story. Okay. Linda, take it away. So I grew up out West here in California. My parents were very into history and archaeology and geology and anything outdoors. So I grew up camping a lot in Nevada and Oregon and California. And we visited a lot of rock art sites as well. You know, I kind of grew up with it. When I started as an undergrad at San Jose State, I originally wanted to be a psychology major, a child psychologist. I happened to take archaeology field school and um, they were excavating a site in Santa Cruz. I thought this will be easy because I've I've been to so many archaeological sites as a child. Uh, You know, I'll fit right in with this field school. I did. I really enjoyed the field school and then decided to double major because I almost had my psychology degree at that point. So I double majored and ended up with a double BA in anthropology and psychology. And then while I was at San Jose State, a job with the Forest Service, a seasonal archaeology job came up with the Forest Service doing archaeological surveys, and I applied for it and got it. While I was working there at Sierra National Forest, which incidentally has burned up in all of the fires uh, recently, I went to Cal State Hayward and ended up with a master's degree there in anthropology. And I had started working for the Bureau of Land Management in Hollister as their um, area archaeologist. 
And how I chose my thesis topic was actually a direct result of my being at uh, the Bureau of Land Management because it was really difficult to manage archaeological sites when there was no sort of overarching management plan or any real knowledge of the region. And so I uh, discussed with the BLM office and the Cal State Hayward the idea of doing widespread geospatial study of all of the archaeological sites under the jurisdiction of the Hollister office down there. And they said that would be a great idea. So that's what I did my uh, thesis on. And it was great because it was directly relevant to what I was doing down there. And it got me my degree. And I've been doing archaeology ever since. How did you get to the position that, that you're at the University of Santa Clara, Linda? So I was still with the Bureau of Land Management in Hollister, and I was actually recruited by uh, SCU to come up there. The um, archaeology lab director was resigning because she was going off to graduate school. And I happened to know uh, one of the faculty members there uh, in the anthro department, and he called me and asked me if I would apply for this job. And uh, so I did, and I've been there 22 years um, oh my word! And I've gone oh. from uh, I used to be on the academic side of the house. I used to work for the college. Uh, I'm on the operations side of the house now because uh, my work has evolved into construction management and the cultural resource aspect of the archaeology. There, we have a very, very aggressive construction program. Uh, we've built, I think, 19 buildings since I've been there, and we've done a tremendous amount of archaeology. Fabulous. Thank you, Linda. Donna, how did you meet Linda? And Linda, how did you meet Donna? Well, let's see. I'm not sure how I did meet Linda. I think just through archaeology for so much, we both were interested in rock art. And I don't remember exactly how that happened. I do. I do. You? I do. We were at the Santa Clara County Archaeological Society meeting, which we used to we used to host at Santa Clara, and I was the vice president of the society, and Russ Skoranek was the president. Okay. And um, Mark uh, Hilkema knew you, and when we were at one of the meetings one night, he said, "Oh, you need to meet Donna," and <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and and the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is now, history. Now, Donna, you've been very active in terms of your association with, I believe, the American Rock Art Research Association, haven't you? Yes, I have. I've been involved for probably close to 25 years, sitting on the board most of that time, and most of that time also being the conference coordinator, uh, working on planning our yearly conferences here, both here and uh, nationally, and doing international conferences in the U.S. for our group. What spurred your interest in specifically rock art as a subject matter? I always liked the rock art. You know, I always thought the rock art was very, very interesting. I've always enjoyed it. I've always thought it was very interesting. I didn't really have a lot of experience in archaeology itself, except you do have in a master's program, your degree is in anthropology, not in rock art. And at Berkeley, likewise, it's a degree in anthropology, not rock art. I got kind of interested in it, and I don't know quite what it was that started this, but I, oh, I do know exactly what it was. I went to an SCA meeting Uh, where I met Brett mm -hmm. Parkman, and at that, I was just starting my master's project, and I started asking people, I want a good master's project, uh, and I'd like it to involve rock (laughs) art. Any suggestions? And I had several, and one especially I won't even 
tell you what it was, but I did have one from Breck Parkman who had just written an article ah. in There Grows a Green Tree mm-hmm. uh, for, for Fredrickson, an honorarium volume for him. And he had decided because Fredrickson didn't really like the PCNs, mm-hmm. that, which I will tell you about in a minute. He decided to write an article about them. Ah. But in it, he made a few mistakes here and there in his haste. And he said, why don't you pick up on the PCNs? Well, a PCN is a pect curvilinear nucleated object or, or element. And it's pecked around in a circle with a center that it sticks out, is nucle- uh, nucleated. So I started looking into it. I read everything Breck had written. And then I contacted Maria, or Maria, contacted Teresa Miller Saltzman, who had done the original work on it and given it its name in 19, late 70s from San Francisco uh, University uh, State College, I guess it was at that time, who was working under Murado. So as a result, I started getting deeper and deeper. I got more involved with Teresa, who was no longer working in the field, but still very interested in it. And we have worked together now for the last 25 or so years on this whole subject. And Linda, for your master's thesis, you mentioned that there was sort of an overlap in some ways with some of the interests of Donna. Maybe you can at least uh, give us a thumbnail on that. Right. These 450 archaeological sites, there are were different types. And where was this? So the Diablo Range, sort of, uh, if you know where Highway 152 and San Luis Reservoir is, all the way down past Coalinga was my thesis area. It's a very large thesis area. Okay. And that's why I didn't do any excavations. It was purely a survey project because uh, I did encompass nearly 450 archaeological sites pre-contact. And many, gotcha. many of gotcha. those sites, not all, but many were rock art. And so I included them in this geospatial analysis, uh, which was basically dividing sites into types based on the amount of individual artifact classes they had. I wanted some way to objectify them rather than you hear the terms campsite or seasonal site or camp. You know, what does that really mean? You know, it, it can vary from region to region. And so I wanted a way to objectify it so I could quantify it. And so I picked three different site type, or I designated three different site types. One was a special use, which was where one type of activity occurred. Uh, the next one was a selective multiple use, which is where more than one, but less than three artifact classes were present. And then extensive multiple use were those that had more than three artifact class types. So rock art, there were a lot of special use sites that were rock art, but there were actually far more sites that were sort of uh, selective multiple use sites and that they were cupule rock art with bedrock mortars. Uh, so really, mm-hmm, so uh, the vast majority of petroglyph sites in the Diablo range on the eastern side of the Diablo range is where they're mostly congregated are mostly cupules with bedrock mortars and sometimes lithic scatters. Tell me what a cupule is, please. A cupule is a small pecked indentation. They are typically, in the Diablo range, they're typically on sandstone boulders, not 
exclusively, but extensively. And they're small, maybe two, three inches in diameter, roughly. And they can occur in lines or just random. But it's very interesting that they do occur a lot with bedrock mortars along streams or near watercourses. What do the anthropologists or archaeologists have to say about the possible uh, nature, function, meaning of things that we call cupules? I'll ask Linda first, then Donna. There's more information, I think, uh, like the Pomo baby rocks, you know, of of the North Coast ranges. I'm not sure that we actually know what cupules were used for in the Diablo range. The uh, ethnographic record is very sparse. Interesting. But maybe Donna has more info than I do. Donna, you have 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 30 seconds. Let me give you a really quick thing. They're also found on several of the uh, PCN sites. Okay. In the green chest. And up there, a lot of them are used, are, are made by kind of with an element. Uh, they put it in there and kind of turned it around and were able to form the cupule with that movement. They're found worldwide. They have many, many uses worldwide. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I know we packed in a lot of information in this first segment. And... Uh, We'll see you all on the next segment. Thanks. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast on your Archaeology Podcast Network. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and I'm the host of the Rock Art Podcast, and we are blessed and honored to have two, count them, one, two, guests. We have Linda Hilkema. And we have Donna Gillette. Linda is from the Santa Clara University, Director of Cultural Resource Management. And our friend Donna Gillette is a a doctor of anthropology, archaeology, and all things rock art from the University of California, Berkeley. And we're here to talk about rock art, but about anthropology, archaeology, and uh, what makes it so interesting. And I think in uh, this second segment, we're going to bear down a bit on um, perhaps the geography relating to this thing they call PCNs, this pecked 
curvilinear nucleated expression of rock art. So I think I'm going to let Donna launch us out and explain a few things about the basis of your PhD dissertation, I guess, by way of its subject matter. Why did you choose that? And give us a a word picture of what a PCN is and what kinds of stone it appears on and how it's produced and where you find them. The PCN, as we call them, the PEC curvilinear nucleated element, are found throughout the coastal ranges of California. We have a couple of sites that go up into Oregon, and we go down into Baja, California with a few sites also. Do you find them in the desert at all, in the Great Basin, or no? Just in the coastal ranges. Furthest east is probably Kern County, down in uh, in the lower part of Southern California. Okay. That's probably the most southern sites we have that are, and the most eastern sites. They usually are on a single boulder or a group of boulders. Okay. The boulders consist of uh, chlorite schist or some type of a Franciscan formation. It's soft, easily manipulated and carved or pounded, however they chose to do it. We think they were extracting powder uh, to use in ritual. But all of this is just, we don't know the real story. We take a lot of our information from ethnographic information that came from Barrett about the Pomo baby rocks, which are up in Mendocino County. And at that time, Dr. Barrett was talking to a gentleman who owned the ranch there, I guess, and was telling him about what these were for, the man on the ranch and the local native. I think a a local person was also, a consultant was also telling him what they were for. Now, I've had the opportunity on several occasions to actually visit those rocks, which is really, really exciting. Let's see what else you want to know about the PCNs. Uh, We have now identified maybe two, oh, well over 150 sites, maybe 160, 70 sites. And a couple, two or three of us are working on trying to get all of these put together in one document to leave for uh, future researchers. Uh, That's Teresa and I, another couple of people. Donna, I know that uh, there were some people who were at one time thinking that these were like on the Channel Islands, these were areas where they were going to get steatite to make bowls, but that's not what they were for. Yes, that is very true. Uh, I had an opportunity when I lived in Southern California uh, to go with John Johnson from the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History and a piece, uh, a researcher from UCLA who was working on dissertation research to go out to the Channel Islands in the back area that's in the conservation area and to visit the bowl quarries. Mm -hmm. One visit there told you really clearly that these were not PCNs that they were producing there. Those were bowls that were purposefully formed just for a bowl or some type of a purpose like that. They were not the beginning of PCNs or remnants of PCNs. Is the stone the same? The lithology, is it uh, the same kind? A lot of them, yes, for the... um, Stone bowls? The bowls, yes. A lot of them are out of the same material. That's why it was thought. And it's easy to manipulate. I see. Uh, And so I think that's why they kind of thought it was the same thing. I was told by the researcher after I was out there that she thought there was a PCN site there, but she then had to pull out of the program and she kind of disappeared from the, uh, from the landscape. And I never was able to, to follow that one through. 
chloride schist is is of a green color, isn't it? Uh, is it sometimes kind of a green or green blue? Green or green blue. That's that's very very interesting. And you were saying that that these boulders, these green blue chloride schist boulders, uh, where you find these features, are are often near water. Are they not? Yes, they often are near water. And one of my thoughts on that, because my my study, of course, was a landscape study. I did identify this on maps that they were all close to some type of a water source or water uh, was moving through that area. We believe possibly they traveled up the water streams as, and that was where they found the chlorite shift. I see. Some are on boulders that stick up on the top of a hill, but normally they're, they're pretty near a water source. Interesting. Well, Linda, how did you overlap with uh, Donna's research vis-a-vis your own uh, thesis? Well, when I was so when I was um, inventorying all of these sites, you know, there were, you know, quite a few rock art sites. One of them uh, was SBN 12, and I had had the opportunity to visit it uh, one year when the reservoir was down. This was before, actually before I met Donna, and it was a pretty it's a pretty phenomenal site. There's no archaeological site around it. But there is a very, very large village site within, I would say, half a mile of it. And in fact, it's the site is visible from there. So I can't remember exactly how Don and I got started on it. But I know that we started talking about this site because it had PCNs on it and she was she was aware of it. And there was a point about 10 years ago where the reservoir was down again and we went out there together and looked at it again and kind of re, re into, uh, looked at all the different stylistic elements. Oh, that particular site, SBN 12, had more different types of elements than any other rock art site in that area. And there are a few other rock art sites in the Diablo range that have, say, PCNs. And I think there were, Donna, you'll have to help me, uh, pie pans, yes. scratched lines, incised lines. And copy lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many elements would you say is on that SBN 12? Don't ask us. Let me, before we say how many elements are on there, for those that don't know, let's, let's kind of explain what SBN stands for. Yes, thank you. SBN right. is San Benito County. And that's the old way of identifying sites. That was called a trinomial. And it was started by the Smithsonian, I believe. Uh, and each county had their own trinomial system for naming numerically the sites as they were identified. So this was San Benito right, County right. number 12. San Benito 12 would have been one of the first exactly. sites ever, ever discovered. Yes. When was it originally documented? Uh, 1947, oh. I believe. I think Al- Alsacer, Albert Alsacer, I think, I think he was on the original site form. We actually did write an article in American Indian Rock Art on SBN 12. Okay. If I had it handy, I could refer to it. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> when it was first identified, which I have a photograph of, there were mm-hmm. many, many more elements on that boulder visible. I had known about this through, I don't know if it was Al Elsasser that told me about it or somehow, or um, I don't know how, how it was, but I did the research to find out where it was. And upon doing that, I, I knew it was buried in a reservoir that was covered with water. So I started researching it and found out who owned the property that was right above it and it would have continued down there Mm -hmm. and found out it was a lawyer, uh, a couple of lawyers 
And I sat on it for a very long time because I thought, boy, I'll never get there. Well, I finally got up the courage to send them a, a, I don't know if I called them or what, probably I called them because I don't think we had computer stuff at that point. And they were so gracious and invited me out. With which time we got in a little boat, we went out and tried to decide exactly where it was because it was underwater. But it was an introduction for me. They then graciously, as we went on time and time, ended up giving me the combinations to their gates. And we did some extensive, what do you want to call it, of cataloging all of the sites and charting all of them and recording all of them. This was over a, quite a period of time. Eventually, I got a phone call from them and they said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He says, the bad news is for us, but the good news is for you because the reservoir is empty and you can now see the rock. So what was interesting is when I had this old photograph that had been taken before it was filled with water uh, the first time, there were all these other elements. During this time, about 20 feet of silt had gone up around the edges of the rock. And so those things are lost from view now even when the, there's a drought or whatever. I've had an opportunity to be there two or three times when it was empty and you could go out there and see it. Mm-hmm. And it's just really magnificent. How tall do you think the boulder is, Linda? I think it's probably at least 40 feet tall. It probably. I mean, yeah, considering what's below the silt there, um, it's, it's big. I see. It's and it's probably the rock. The rock is probably what thirty feet across. Oh, like you can, you know, it's here, at yeah, least it's big. And it looks like before it was a reservoir. It was sort of on the embankment of a small seasonal stream. Yes. Uh, if you look at Alsacer's, you know, photo, and it's just you know silted up over the decades from being underwater. You've worked hard for what you have: your money, your assets, your four hundred one k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save twenty-five percent off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at lifelock.com/aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, welcome back, all you uh, fans in, in the uh, rock art and archaeology podcast land. We had a technical difficulty finishing up segment two, so we're just going to pick it up from where we left it off. We're talking about some of the nuances and details of trying to work on SBN 12 and kind of give people a word picture of what that particular site and why it is so impressive the uh, the physical setting is pretty impressive. It's sort of uh, on the edge of Hernandez Valley, which is a, a rather large valley that has the San Benito River running through it, which is a permanent water course. And it's interesting to me that SBN 12 is, is uh, such a detailed site. And at the same time, there is a very, very large 
village site very close by uh, within a half a mile. In fact, you can you can be at SBN 12 and you can look over. It's just past the reservoir dam and there's a huge, I mean, this site must be several acres and you can see house pits and it probably was a tribal center at one time. And so, and it's the biggest site that I've ever seen out there in the Diablos. So it's very interesting to me that this big, huge site is very close to this very large, not, not adjacent to, but within reason, fairly close to one of the most elaborate rock art sites. What would the ethnolist linguistic group be that was there historically, Linda or Donna? Oh, let me chime in here a minute. Yeah, please. Okay, I think uh, we kind of decided, I think, Linda, you were involved in this, that this was kind of possibly a meeting place of several tribal groups mm. and that they're represented by different different groups from different areas. And it kind of it's just kind of what we had kind of felt about it. When we first saw it, the other thing about it is that there, I don't know of any PCN sites that are located in villages, which may go along with the idea that this was a ritual type site that was kind of done in private between a young man and a young woman and probably not a public ritual. Right. This site is far enough away that it's you have to it's a destination site. You have to go there. So it's it's not just some place you'd pass by when you're walking to the village. It's kind of tucked out of the way, but yet still visible. And getting back to the ethnography, we we were Heiser at one time had postulated that sort of the spine of the Diablo Range was kind of a boundary area between the Yokuts of the uh, San Joaquin Valley and the various southern Ohlone groups. But the more archaeology or the more survey I did out there, and and I think uh, Randy Milliken kind of was leaning this way that the Diablo range proper was more, uh, the groups were more coastally oriented. So they probably were more Ohlone uh, groups and the archeological change didn't really manifest itself until you got kind of at the edge of the San Joaquin Valley, sort of the edge of the Diablos. And then it becomes quite clear that the Valley, the San Joaquin Valley is influencing the archeology. span so I, we don't really know exactly who would have been there at SBN 12, but the archaeology around it strongly suggests to me that they were probably probably more Elonian coastal groups, Elonian groups. So they were ancestors of the Eloni. Now, the Eloni were what linguistic group, what particular branch or tradition or linguistic stock? They were Hokan, is that correct? Eloni is sort of a catch-all term for many, many different groups of peoples that were living in this greater San, uh, San Francisco regional Bay area. So, and I, I don't have my thesis in front of me, so I can't tell you the exact ethnographic group or the closest ethnographic group of that area, but I right. can come, if you gave me a minute, I could come back to it. Yeah. But the Yokuts were were different linguistically, were they not? I think they were they were Panutian speakers. They were Panutians. They were Panutians. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the whole Panutian Hokan. Yeah, but I but I think that what you're seeing again is, as Donna had said, there seems to be a differentiation between obviously the presence of this style of rock art mm-hmm. and within this particular landform. Am I at all right, Donna? I think so. It's all coastal ranges. Okay. And early on, you know, my thought on it, and this is purely my thought, is that at one time there was probably 
one group that traveled. We think these are very, very old. We've kind of always said five to 8,000 years. And I have indications from my research that they probably go back in some areas, maybe at least 10,000 years. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Very, so very before, amazing. Or maybe there were all these individual groups and it was an earlier group of proto-Hokan that mm-hmm. went down this whole area because I believe the Hokan are the ones in Baja also. Yeah. And I think it was a, an article that uh, Martin Baumhoff and uh, D.L. True wrote with, that tried to associate certain types of rock art with some of the earliest in migrations into California. Right. Was, what, what was that all about? Do you remember, Donna, that what that was about in terms of how we can associate rock art? My interpretation on that is that the geographical distribution of the sites. Okay. It follows a trend to go through the coastal ranges, does not go out of the coastal ranges, and probably just preceded, you know, I would think down from north to south, but I don't know that for sure. Uh, but it's probably the geographical distribution that goes through different different groups. Right. But yet we find the same elements, which makes me think all the more that they're early before all these separate groups were identified. So how did you go about discovering these sites? What methods did you use and how did you document them? They must be difficult to uh, record, aren't they? Well, let me tell you how we, how we found them. Please. For my master's thesis, I put together the geographical distribution of the sites. There were sites that had been identified, I think it was 64 sites. The Teresa and her cohort had gone jumping in the 70s over fences, up and down uh, mountains and such in Marin and Sonoma uh, counties, which had been determined that it was void of rock art which was not, I think Heiser was the one that said there's no rock art there. I think well, so. I think so. They wanted to prove him wrong, I think. And they found <laughs> all these sites. Wow. Uh, and so there's big plethora of sites in this area. So that's the majority of the sites are in that area, mainly due because they're investigating work there. Okay. Site reports were filed on these sites. Uh, photos were taken and people knew them. Teresa gave it the name PCN. And I was asked to change that, but there was nothing you could change it to. You had to have a descriptive type of a, of a name for this. So the rest of them, I, I kind of looked at this uh, geographical distribution of it and saw them all in that area. Then I started looking down at, at other areas and I found that there was an area in near Cambria where the, the researcher, and I can't remember her name right now, she had, had deemed them, they were on the Hearst Ranch. She had deemed them donuts, is what she called them. <laughs> and if we makes sense. Areas, yeah, no, makes a sense. Yeah, they were called different things, and so I was able through my uh, my research to pinpoint these sites. And since then, since I started putting the word out on them at every meeting I went to and giving papers on it, more and more people came to me, and more and more people found them when they were doing different things and let me know about them. And so we've been able to continue to build our whole inventory of sites. How many are there? Well over 150. I've heard 170 now. I have not had a real recent one. Record them uh, with photography. 
Uh, we have an artist, uh, Paul Reynoso, who's gone with us and has done several of the sites we've worked on. They're drawn. Sometimes we put a, they'll be traced sometimes depending on where they are. We don't want to do anything invasive to the rocks. Right. So we've done, used various, various ways like that that where they have been recorded. And so the most northernmost one is where? I think we have a couple in Oregon. And the southernmost ones? Probably Baja, California. That's amazing. What kind of distance is that? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. How far are we? Five, six, seven hundred miles, eight hundred miles? That is absolutely amazing to have a design tradition that is patterned and that has some level of consistency over that kind of geography. I'm sure that's got to be something right. that's got to be extremely unusual, even worldwide. Yeah, the, some of these in Moran, uh, I believe, are more recent uh, that probably came about, and that's why there's so many of them in that area. But I think the original ones were very, very old. Uh, we also have kind of a, a unique situation in Georgia. Okay. The state of Georgia. Uh huh. There is another site there in a bank parking lot that has identical markings on it on the same type of material. You're kidding me. Now, what that is, <laughs> we don't know, uh, but it's an anomaly. Wow. Uh, and it's in everything you get anomalies. You sure do. That's rather amazing. So, given your dedication, both uh, Donna and Linda, to this piece of geography and this class of rock art what is that significance what's the story what's the discovery what is the what's the takeaway what's the theme of your research that we should get out to the public about these sites okay my my thought is i'll tell you a little bit just very briefly about my uh, dissertation my dissertation was up at hopland research station up in mendocino county in hopland california it was a wonderful place to work. Absolutely fantastic. We had what we thought were four sites there. By the time we finished, I think we have about six sites there now. The one that I did my research on was a split boulder. And Teresa had been to this site before, but didn't really have much on it. But I saw it. We were both saw it at the same time when we were searching around. We had GPSs. We were searching around in this, on this hillside looking for it, and we see this boulder, and we go up to it, and it is split in half. And half of a PCN element was on one side of the boulder and half on the other side. Wow. And immediately I said, this is it. This is where I'm going to do my research, and if we're going to find anything, it's going to be through investigation around this boulder. So what I proceeded to do was an excavation down the middle where it was split into two pieces and try to do some experimental dating of the soil. Oh. And that's where I actually came up with some experimental dates, which have not been verified, but take us back about 10,000 years. What kind of dates were they? It helped me understand. Oh, now you didn't, you did that to me too. And I don't have my dissertation here either. Were they radiocarbon dates? Were they... We did radiocarbon dates. We tried to. Uh, some didn't work out. A lab that was doing them kind of blew it and took two years to get them to me. And there was probably some failure in there. Okay. In specimens during that time. I did some carbon dates of the experimental dates of dating carbon in the rock near it. Really? It was found okay. by these. Huh. Uh, along where schist was found, little pieces of schist. Huh. I used 
three or four different methods to try and do it and then kind of calibrated them together. My study was what you call a landscape archaeology study. Okay. Because at Berkeley, as I said before, you don't study rock art. It's an archaeology study, and mine was placing this phenomena, this process, the PCN boulders, on the landscape and to look at what else was going on on that very large 5,000-some acre landscape. Fantastic. I was very fortunate when I started that I had made a trip up to visit and met a gal who was working on a PhD from Davis uh-huh. on the site. Before long, not even a year had passed, and she quit the program and left. Wow. And she left, I can't remember how many thousand artifacts huh. that had not been properly cataloged or anything. I was fortunate to be able to pick up on her 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 artifacts and was able to, um, to use those. So I did not have to excavate except right around my own bowl older I was studying there. And I was able to identify hunting sites, church sites, all sorts of different sites throughout the, the Hopland Field Station. Wonderful. Uh, and to determine there was no residential village site there. I see. You emphasize, Donna and Linda, that you're doing what's called landscape archaeology. Can you give us a picture of what you mean by that? Maybe, Linda, you can talk a bit about that subject matter. What I well, what I did is uh, I, I made a mosaic. I took three different site types, and I think I briefly talked about them before, and intersected them with four sort of uh, physiographic settings. I had a canyon floor, canyon mouth, upper canyon, and then ridge top. And the idea was to look at how these different types of sites were placed on the landscape the physical landscape, and also correlating that with the types of other resources, uh, natural resources that were there. What did you discover? What did you learn about the nature of land use and landscape? Is there a correlation between particular types of landforms or landscape settings and certain types of sites? Absolutely. So there's some obvious things like you never really find huge village sites on ridge tops. You know, there's some obvious things, but the vast majority of the large village sites were down in the in the valleys or at the canyon mouths. And those are very uh, advantageous settings because you have the valley resources, but then you also have all of the resources that are up in the canyon as well. And a lot of the rock art, a lot of the uh, cupule rock art was found in the canyon mouth settings, which I thought was very interesting. Very little rock art was actually uh, special use rock art uh, in terms of just the rock art and no, nothing else going on was found up along the ridge tops. except, and uh, you were asking about, anom- or we were talking about anomalies a minute ago, there is one site, uh, Fresno 2244, which is an anomaly, and I haven't I haven't been up to see it in 25 years, but it was a pictograph site. Mm-hmm. Most of the rock art in the Diablo ranges are petroglyphs, pect designs. Mm-hmm. This pictograph actually is very reminiscent of some of the Chumash rock art, and it. And I'm not, and I am not a rock art expert at Chumash by any means, but it, it appears to me to be very reminiscent of some of the, the art that you see down in Santa Barbara. And this particular site has midden and bedrock mortars and pestles, but it's a, a large sort of vertical sandstone boulder that has pictographs with anthropomorphic figures 
They have large phallic appendages. There's dot and punctuation figures that are sort of in orderly clusters and rows. So it sounds like it's an amazing, amazing site. I'm going to chime in very quickly and say Please. another way of looking at landscape archaeology Please. is that it is also known as contextual archaeology. Okay. And it's looking mm-hmm. at a site within a broader context. And what does that mean? That you're not just looking at a rock and what is on that rock. You're looking at the context in which it is found. Uh, the landscape it's found in, the activities that have gone on around it. It's the really current way to look at archaeological sites. It's not pulling an element out of the rock. It's a more holistic. Got it. So if there was one thing that uh, our listeners should take away from this uh, extensive interaction with us, it's what? The Diablo Range is still very understudied. In fact, in my thesis, I called it the black hole of California archaeology. And in fact, if there are students looking for projects, that is a perfect place to work because we do not know a whole lot about archaeology of the central Diablo Ranges. And you, Donna? What I learned was uh, I had one person who I had asked to write me a letter uh, of recommendation to Berkeley has said, what are you going to do for your dissertation? You've already done PCNs. And I said, I haven't even scratched the surface of many things out there that can be researched. And we hope, I know, I think Linda agrees with me. Mm-hmm. We hope to leave as archaeologists some remnants of some information that could be picked up on and developed by people that have further knowledge and further ability at dating. Donna and Linda, this was delightful. This is really a very special uh, interaction and uh, just lovely. And I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart for spending time with us to, to share your passion and interest in, in both rock guard archaeology, anthropology. Alan, I have one final thing I'd like to say. It's never too late if your dream is to get into archaeology and you want to accomplish something. I completed my dissertation study two months before I turned 70. (laughs) Donna, I love that. That's a great takeaway. Donna and Linda, thank you so much. See you next week, gang. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Alan. You're most welcome, Donna and Linda. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From 